Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Fantastic. Thank you, Will. Hey, did you notice on this little half sheet here, one of the presenters is uh, Robin Downs and Associates. My wife, she's going to be presenting, and she's really good. I like her. So <laughs> you might want to consider that, my friends. Also, would you please take notice you have that yellow flyer there? Um, this is our resource of the month now for the month of April, and uh, I wanted to draw your attention to it. it it's a book that has been around for close to 150 years. It was written right around 1875 or so. Um, a lady by the name of Hannah Whitehall-Smith. And it is really, really good. Uh, I love what she's done. She essentially has said, look, this is what it means. This is what the calling is to be a follower of Christ. And she kind of lays that out in the beginning of the book. Then she kind of goes into a section of, you know what, maybe we need to reorient our thinking toward that calling. And she kind of deals with that. And then the last section of the book is just, now what does that mean and how are you going to do that practically? It's really good. And so I strongly recommend it. The only problem is we sold out um, first service. But uh, just put your, sign your name down. We'll, we'll pick them up and we'll, we'll have them here definitely by next Sunday. Um, if you're dying to get it earlier, we'll probably have it by Wednesday. So um, you can see Ann in the back there and she will take that information or Jim, either of them back there. But it's a great book. I strongly encourage it for you guys to pick it up. You may recall I quoted her last week during our Easter sermon. Um, so anyway, there you have it. My friends, we are in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 11. We took a, sort of a, a one week off for Easter last week, and now today we're going to return to our verse-by-verse look. Uh, and as we do so, why don't we go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the word. Lord, we have such confidence, Lord, in your word and that through your word, Lord, we can be taught and we can be uh, corrected in our thinking. Lord, you can challenge us in areas of sin. And Lord, you can really just establish us in truth. Lord, we believe your word is, uh, is God-breathed. And so we look forward to receiving from you now. We ask that you would minister to our hearts, you'd speak to us. Lord, you'd bring us sort of right onto those dusty uh, streets there as if we were just sort of observers taking it in and you'd bless our time together. Lord, you'd minister to our hearts. And so we present ourselves, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, while you're looking for Matthew 11, let me remind you of Matthew chapter 10. First verse in Matthew chapter 10 tells us it's in this chapter that Jesus is going to commission the 12 apostles. Jesus, as you know, had many people that were following him, disciples, learners that were following him. And from that group of 100 or so people, he sent 12 in particular out to go and do some ministry. We read it in Matthew verse 10, verse 1. It says, And he called to him the 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then the rest of chapter 10 are sort of instructions to these guys or this is what you're going to encounter, this is what you should expect, this is what you should say, this is how you should do it, and so on and so forth. And that's what chapter 10 was all about. Now as we come to chapter 11, the disciples, these guys, they're going to go and do what he just told them to do, and now Jesus is going to kind of get on with the rest of his life and his ministry while they're off doing their ministry. So chapter 11, verse 1 
It says, now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And so the disciples go their way. Jesus goes on his way. It seems, we don't know for sure, but it seems that the wording is such is they leave their cities to go to other ones, and then he goes to their cities, and he's hitting each of theirs and teaching there. And, you know, I look at that, and I say, well, why do that? Why not send the disciples back to their own cities? They can stay in their own bed, and they can go and do the ministry there. And, and I do think it's a, it's a reasonable question, and I think it's one that we can answer from a variety of angles. Why doesn't Jesus just send these disciples back to their own cities? Well, the first thing that I would say is this. We don't want to take from this, since Jesus sends them to other cities, that Jesus doesn't want to go, us to go to our own cities. He does. Jesus wants us to go and minister first in our hometown. And so he wants us to minister in our place of work, and he wants us to be uh, a light bearer in our hometowns. And when we bring our kid to Little League or we go to the coffee shop or whatever it may be, we are to do ministry in our hometown. And I think, sadly, oftentimes what happens in, in Christianity is too often we think real big, one day God's going to send me to the other part of the world, and I'm going to be such a good minister in Kenya or Nepal or wherever else that we, we're going to go. And we're waiting to do ministry instead of doing it right now in, in the place that we live. And I commented on this a little while ago. I think sometimes it's easier for us to go to the other side of the world to minister than to actually go across the street to minister. Because if I go to the other side of the world and they say, well, you're a dummy, you're an idiot. I say, oh, bummer. I get on my plane, I watch all the videos they put on there or whatever, and I, I forget about it by the time I get home. I don't even think about it. But if I went across the street, and tried to tell that little old lady that lives across the street, and she said, chased me away with an umbrella or whatever and said, get off my property or whatever. Now i got to kind of deal with that. If I am at work and I try and share with somebody at work, and now they think I'm an idiot and they're laughing at me, and all of a sudden I'm sitting at the lunch table all by myself, and nobody wants to sit with me, that's a little bit harder for me. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit harder for me. But ministry needs to begin at home. And it needs to begin in the day-to-day -day interactions. Quite frankly, if somebody came to me and said, you know what, I really feel God's calling me to be a missionary, my question for them would probably be, well, tell me about the ministry you're currently doing. What are you currently doing? We need to do ministry first at home. Now, that being said, oftentimes the ministry efforts we do at home aren't received very well. Have you come to discover that? You've, you've come to know that? It, Jesus said this. It'll be a few chapters from now, but I've read ahead. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 13. He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. You know, it's so interesting. You can go to other parts of the world, and they lay out a red carpet for you, and they're blowing horns, and they're like, we have these nice people from America that are going to share the guy, and everybody's listening and paying attention and shaking your hand. And, and remember, Don, we went to Kenya together, Don and I, back in 2000. And, you know, you're like a hero coming into town. You go into your family's Christmas party or Thanksgiving, and people are like, oh, the wacko's here. You know what I mean? And so many times we can go across the world and have better success in our ministry efforts where people are responding to our words but trying to do the same things at home is not received so well. And that's frustrating. But according to Jesus' words, it shouldn't be surprising to us. It may be frustrating, certainly, but it shouldn't really surprise us, and we should not let it discourage us. All right? And so I think that's a key because sometimes I think we can try to be faithful, try to share with mom, try to share with our brothers and the people that we work with, they're not receiving it. And then we could draw some conclusion, well, I must just be a louse. I'm just not a good minister. God could never use me anywhere else. 
you know, we say, hey, look, we're, we're sending a team to Kenya to preach the gospel. We're sending a team to Nepal to preach and to teach. And we think, well, I, I stink at ministry. I've never, nobody ever responded positively. And we kind of write ourselves off. We, we discourage ourselves, if you will, don't be. Because it's very difficult to minister at home. And many times our, it's the hardest place for us to do so. And so, again, to quote Jesus' words, the reality is that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And for whatever reason, maybe it's because people know us, maybe people grew up with us, maybe they still think of us as that stupid kid or whatever and they don't want to respond to us. Maybe they've seen one fad after the other come and they've assumed that Jesus is just another fad and he'll fade away. I don't know exactly, but for whatever reason, it's difficult to minister at home. Don't be surprised by it. Don't let it discourage you. It's not our job to worry about whether we're successful or we're failing, so to speak, in ministry. Our job is to be faithful. And when God calls us to speak a word, we speak a word. When he calls us to extend a hand, we extend a hand. Do what you're called to do and let God leave the results with God. Now, Jesus wants to send me over around the world. And my, I don't want to go around the world. What about my hometown, Lord? I love my hometown. I love Ewing. I love Mercer. I love Bucks. What about this town here, Lord? And, and I would say this to you. If the Lord has called you to go somewhere else, you don't have to worry about your hometown because God will take care of your hometown. And he'll call you to go somewhere else and minister, and he'll call somebody else to come here and minister. He cares as much about your hometown as you do. Would you agree? All right, let's continue. Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 11. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, well, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, we already have word that John was arrested. Way back in Matthew chapter 4, we read there that John was arrested for his ministry. Now we see in this particular passage, not only was he arrested, but he was convicted, I guess, if you will, of the crime, and he was put in prison. We will learn in Matthew chapter 14 exactly what it was that John did. He robbed the convenience store. He got caught. It was terrible. It was terrible. Actually, that's not what he did. What John did was he spoke out against the, the ruler of the day. It was a guy by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod the Tetrarch had come into town, and all of a sudden he noticed his brother's wife was pretty good looking, great personality, all those sorts of things. He said, she's all right, look at her. And he took her as his own wife. And the other guy was like, well, that stinks. What was he going to do? Well, John, he comes on the scene, he says, what you're doing is sin. You're committing adultery, and judgment will come down on you for doing so. And Herod the Tetrarch was broken in his heart, right? You know the story? No, he said, what? Nobody speaks that way to me. And he put John the Baptist in prison because John spoke out against the sin that this man was. We'll look at it when we get to Matthew chapter 14. At this point in this particular story, John has been in jail for about prison for about 10 months. And so he's been there almost a year of his life wondering what's going to happen to me, wondering where is Jesus, wondering where's the Messiah that's going to come and deliver me and all of these things. And it seems that John is now going through a little bit of doubting, wrestling with some doubting, wrestling with some discouragement from this time that he's in jail. Now, Herod is a madman. I don't want to ruin the story for you, but hopefully you've read ahead. He'll have John's head cut off eventually. He's a crazy fellow, all as like a, 
like a gift to his wife. What gift do you want? Uh, well, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. You got it, or whatever. Like, what are you, nuts? You know, but that's a, yes, yes, <laughs> he was. And so John is there in prison, and he's getting discouraged. Some doubts are, are forming. Now, we know some things about John. John had been preaching to the people that the kingdom of God was at hand. We saw that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. When John baptized Jesus, Jesus came to him to be baptized. He said, I should be baptizing you. He said, just go ahead and do it. When he baptized Jesus, he heard the voice of God audibly. Everybody else said, was that thunder or something? He heard the voice of God audibly affirm who Jesus was, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At that time, he observed the Spirit of God descend on the Lord. The best way John could describe it is as if it were like a dove descend upon the Lord. He saw that. In John chapter 1, John encounters Jesus. He's got some disciples behind him. That is, John has some disciples behind him. And he says, guys, you see that man across over there? That's the Messiah. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So John knows who Jesus was. And John was fulfilling that role that was foreordained for him. Matthew chapter 3, it's said of John, this is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make, make, path, make straight his paths. So John knows the Lord, he's doing the ministry of the Lord, he's the one that was prophesied of, and yet, despite all of that knowledge, all of that ministry, we read here that John seems to be having some doubts. Doubts about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And so he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? And we look at that and we're like, John, that's terrible. How could you doubt? I thought you were a man of faith. I don't think that. And I'll tell you why I don't think that. Because I have doubts myself and I suspect you. Now, I don't, I don't doubt whether Jesus is the Messiah, but I'm sure you've had these doubts where you're saying, God, what are you doing? God, if you were really all-powerful, couldn't you step in right now? God, if you really loved me, why would you let me go through this? Have you ever thought things like that? So you understand. All right, most of you, for the record, heads are nodding yes. All right, please put that on the record. And so we've doubted like this, and I think it goes something like this. Things don't seem to be going the way we anticipated. We anticipate, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm God's child, I'm a child of the king. That makes me a prince or a princess in your case, some of you ladies, and things like that. Therefore, everything should be perfect for me. And everything doesn't go perfect in this life. I'm reading a book now, it's called, the subtitle is something about finding Jesus in the messiness of life. And I was sitting waiting for a doctor the other day, and a lady said, what's that book about? I said, it's about finding Jesus in the messiness of life or whatever. And she says, well, what exactly does that mean? And so I explained to her, um, the essentially is this, that life doesn't always go perfectly for Christians. Sometimes this thing, you get a bad roll of the dice or whatever you want to call it that. I know that's unbiblical, uh, but you, you get the idea. Like, it just doesn't go the way that you would expect that it should go. I'm a child of the king. Everything should be wonderful for me, but yet it's not always wonderful. So things don't seem to be going as we anticipated. Maybe you take a stand for righteousness and suddenly you become the outcast of a community of people. Maybe you get penalized. Maybe like John, you even get thrown in prison or something. But for a little while, you stand strong. And for a little while, you remind yourself, you know, God is still in control. I'm, I may be sitting here in this prison or I may be sitting here alone at this lunch table. Nobody wants to talk to me, but God still has a plan. But after a little while couple of months, 10 months goes by, and the doubts begin to set in. 
And then you begin to entertain thoughts and wonder where God is or is God really who he said he was? Does God really have the power that we thought that he had to do what we thought that he could do? Maybe some of those thoughts, like John, even actually become audible questions. You, you muster up the courage to actually tell somebody that, say something to someone. Maybe in counseling you would bring it up or at a Bible study with a trusted leader. And you finally say, where is God and what is he doing? Or whatever, And you express those doubts. I think that's what John is doing here. And I think it's something that many of us on our journey with Jesus do as well, when circumstances don't work out the way that we thought they would. And I have to think, I have to wonder, that the pending likelihood of John's death as he sits in the prison of this madman, I think it sort of exacerbates things as well. And it all begins to weigh on him a little bit. I think also... John's expectations of who he thought Jesus was and what he thought Jesus was going to do, since they're not being met, it's beginning to cause some questioning in him. I don't think John is so much losing his faith, but rather I think he's really asking this question, God, what are you doing? This isn't what I anticipated. This isn't what I expected of you. Now, go back and look at John's message. We'll put it up here on the board. In Matthew 3, John, he begins this sermon there on the side of the desert. He begins a sermon by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he continues on in this sermon in the Judean wilderness. And another time, he, these guys come out to him. And he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? A few verses later, he says, the axe is being laid to the root and trees are being thrown into the fire. All of this, he's talking about judgment, isn't he? And so John is sharing this message about a coming judgment against these people here. John had in his mind what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to come and right all of the wrongs. Now John, even though he's in the New Testament, is really an Old Testament prophet. He's sort of in that line of the prophets there. And John, as an Old Testament prophet, prophesied of a day when God's Messiah would come. Now the challenge For the Old Testament prophets, as they prophesied hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus actually came, the challenge is is that sometimes the ministry of the Messiah would sort of all blend into one. Now here we are, we're on the backside, and we can look at it, and we can very clearly see that Jesus was going to come in two separate comings. There was going to be a coming when he came to deal with sin, and he was going to be the suffering servant. And then there was going to be a coming when he would come to deal with, as I've described, as sort of the earth's sin, all of the consequences of sin here on the earth. And he was going to right all of the wrongs and all of the injustices and so on and so forth. And that's his second coming. But here I am, I'm a prophet, and I'm looking forward 3,000 years into the future. Sometimes those things all blend into one. And many times the Old Testament prophets kind of missed exactly the idea of two distinct comings. A first coming to deal with sin, a second coming to deal, as I said, with the earth's sins. And again, by that I mean all of the wrongs our sin has brought to the world, the environment, the governmental structures, social and economic systems, even the way that animals treat one another as the lion and the lamb will lie down together in peace. All of that's going to be righted in his second coming. In the first coming, the Messiah himself bore the judgment of God's sin on himself. In his second coming, he will be the means of that judgment. And so again, the problem that so many prophets of old encountered was the blending of those two um, comings. 
And I think it's the reason why so many people in the New Testament, so many people in Jesus' day, they were looking for Jesus in his first coming to overthrow the Roman government, to establish a system based on righteousness and equity. And in their understanding, they looked past the work required in his first coming right to the work that would be accomplished in his second. And I think that's what John is doing here. And that's why I quoted his sermon that he shared. Everything about it is about judgment. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The axe is laid to the root. Repent, uh, and so on, or face the consequences. And so here's John sitting in prison, the prison of a madman, and he's thinking, all right, Jesus, now would be a good time for you to do your thing. Now would be a good time for you to come and right the wrongs and to set the captive free and to overthrow this lunatic and get me out of prison. And so he sends people to ask Jesus a question. Now notice Jesus' response. It starts in verse 4. Jesus answered these disciples of John. He said, go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended excuse me, offended by me. Now, Jesus' answer is a non-answer. Don't you like getting non-answers from people when you just want an answer? Jesus' answer is a non-answer. Instead, essentially, Jesus says, you go back to John and you tell him to look, th- look it up. You tell him to search through his Bible and answer his own question. And he gives him sort of some hints. He tells John to go back to the, descript- to the Scripture, read it, and then decide whether he is the Messiah or not himself. And he gives a series of signs that he would be doing, the Messiah would be doing, as proof of his authenticity. The first, he starts in verse 4, he says, you go tell John that the blind receive their sight. You tell John that the lame are walking, that the lepers are being cleansed. John probably knew this stuff, but maybe had forgotten, put it out of his mind, wasn't, wasn't kind of putting all the pieces together. He says, you go tell John that the deaf hear and that the dead are raised to life and that the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, every one of those examples that I just shared, with the exception of the dead being raised back to life, nobody really expected that was going to happen, but every other one of those things that Jesus lists there are direct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies about God's Messiah. And we know, looking back, about the first coming of God's Messiah. So in Isaiah 35, we read this. It says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Isaiah chapter 61, we read this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, I'm sure John saw that, and he said, exactly. That's what I'm talking about, opening up prison for those that are bound. But remember, the reality is that not every, while Jesus healed blind people, not every blind person had his sight restored during Jesus' ministry. Not every lame man was empowered to walk, and neither would every prisoner be set free, as John was not. John would eventually die while they're in prison. But the point that Jesus is making is that John should go back, consider the scripture scripture again, and either inform himself or remind himself that the ministry of the Messiah would be in two distinct comings. And Jesus was doing exactly what was prophesied he would be doing in his first coming. Jesus, or John, I should say, he has been focusing on the second coming. And Jesus exhorts him to focus instead on the first. 
The day will come when the Lord will return in great power and he will establish his righteous kingdom. But that was not this day that John was dealing with here. Now Jesus adds another phrase. Look at verse 6. He says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's sort of a, it's not a below the belt punch, but that's a jab to John. That, that's something that he's going to feel in his gut because John was essentially offended by the ministry that Christ was doing. Essentially with John's question, he's essentially saying, yeah, I don't know if I like what you're doing and I wish you'd work a little faster and get to it so I can get out of here. And so let me ask this question. Do you think it's safe to assume that John would have preferred that Jesus did things differently? Do you think that's safe to assume? I, I, I certainly think it is. I'm not even sure why I'm asking you. I wasn't really looking for your answer anyway. But nonetheless, I, I think it's safe to assume he would have preferred things be done differently. Jesus in his first coming is gentle, he's humble, he's a servant. And all of those things were out of character for what many of the Jews were expecting And the prevailing image of the day is that the Messiah would come to rule and to reign and to clean house and to right all the wrongs in these things. And so I make this point here, whereas John would have have liked Jesus to do something differently, I'll make this point. God doesn't always do things exactly as we would wish. God doesn't always do things exactly as we would wish. And we know God has greater insight. God has more complete knowledge and understanding of things. You know, there, there were options. You've probably been in this circumstance where maybe you're at a, a work situation or something. A decision needs to be made. It's a decision that most people don't like. But the reason why you and maybe that group of people made the decision that you made is because you have more information than everybody else does. Everybody else thinks you're an idiot. Everybody else thinks your decision is terrible. But they don't know A, B, and C. And if they did, they would agree with you. One day they'll know it, but you're not at liberty to tell them right now. You've probably been there. Well, the Lord has much more complete knowledge and understanding of things than you and I do. And there are times the Lord makes decisions that we don't exactly like, and we wish he would do something differently. The uh, prophet Isaiah said this. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For a variety of reasons, Jesus doesn't always do the things exactly as we wish he would do them. And Jesus here, he sort of says this, if I can put it in, in the Greg Downs translation, he says, and blessed is the one that's okay with that. He, he phrases it a little more eloquently, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. But that's essentially what he's saying. F.B. Meyer, a Bible commentator, he said, this is an additional beatitude. Remember back in Matthew 5, we had those 10 or 12 beatitudes that he presented there to us. He said, this is an additional beatitude. And Meyer worded it as, blessed are the unoffended. Blessed are the unoffended, and that is the unoffended by the work that the Lord is doing. And I think this is not just a word for John, but I think it's a word for you and I, because I think too often in our Christianity, we forget that Jesus is Lord, and that means we are his subjects. I don't think as an American I'm comfortable being called anybody's subject, and yet that's what it means to be in relationship with Christ. We are his subjects. He is the Lord. We are his subjects. That means that the Lord makes the rules, and it's ours to follow them. Now, some of you probably hear that and you think, and, I'll, and quite frankly, this is what I'm thinking right now. That offends me. And so Jesus says, blessed are the unoffended. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not blessed, Lord. I'm angry. I don't want to be a subject. You, you see, 
I'm just being honest with you, friends. I'm just trying to keep it real with you here. I'm trying to articulate maybe what you're thinking as well. Jesus says, and blessed are the unoffended. Now, remember this. The word blessed, the phrase there, it's one word in the English, but the phrase is, could be translated, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy are the unoffended. If you want to go about your Christian walk continually questioning God, and his goodness, and what he is doing, and is is he powerful, and all these things, you're going to go through your Christian walk somewhat in misery. Oh, how happy is the one that is not offended to say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but I trust what you're doing. When I say, oh, how happy, I'm referring to peace in our walks with the Lord, contentedness, satisfaction in our walk with the, the Lord. And true happiness as a disciple of Christ comes it when we settle into this idea that his ways are not our ways and that we may not always understand, but that we can always trust. And so he says to John, he tells his disciples to tell him, blessed are the unoffended. Now, if things stop there, we could walk away from this. Oh boy, you may have doubts, but don't ever tell Jesus about your doubts because he's going to lay one on you if you do. And, you know, you kind of look at it that way. It is a strong statement that is made to John. It's designed to be. And, again, if the passage ended there, it might cause us to don't ever be honest with the Lord or he'll get you. But notice Jesus' view of John. It doesn't stop here. He goes on, starting in verse 7. He says, now, as those disciples went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he said, what did you do? Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? He said, what what then did you go see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He said, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. I want to say what the Spirit says to the churches, because that's what it says in Revelation, but it's not there. He who has ears, let him hear. So John's disciples are on their way, and they're going to go back and report to John. And as they're leaving, Jesus turns to the crowd. Maybe the crowd is thinking, oh, boy, John got in trouble or something like that. And so Jesus wants to address this, and Jesus asks a couple of questions. The first one we read, what what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Think of like a, a branch of a tree just sort of blowing this way and that way. Last night, my goodness, did you see all the things, you know, just sort of blowing this way and that way, no stability, no strength. And he says, is that what John is like? Is John some weak, vacillating reed blown this way or that way by the desert winds? And the answer we know is, of course not. John was a solid rock of a man. And John spoke truth regardless of the consequences, as evidenced by the fact that now he's in jail because he did so. So he's not a reed blown in the wind. Jesus asks another one. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Is John some prim and proper religious leader that lived a life of comfort and luxury? Certainly we know that's not the case either. 
We know that John clothed himself in camel's hair. And if, think of a burlap sack. You remember when you're the three-legged, whatever that's called, potato race or whatever? Think of that as a nice gown on you or something like that. And put the rough side on the inside. That, that's what camel's hair is like. Not very pleasant, certainly. John ate locust to nourish himself. That's disgusting. All righty, but it does the trick or whatever, and apparently if you dip it in enough honey, you know, you don't know what you're eating, but no thank you. All right, so John wasn't some guy out there kind of living high on the hog or whatever as a religious leader. He wasn't in the lap of luxury. Jesus asked another question, but now this time the answer is going to be the affirmative. He says, what then did you go out to see, a prophet? And this time Jesus says, yes, John is a prophet. John was a prophet. Jesus will actually go on. He'll say he was more than a prophet. And he tells us why, at least one of the reasons. He said, because this is he of whom it was prophesied would come to prepare the way before you or of the Messiah. So two reasons why John is more than a prophet. He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Number one is because not only was John a prophet, but John was prophesied of. So he was a prophet that was prophesied of. Malachi chapter 3, it's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and conveniently it's named Malachi, because that's who was prophesying, and Malachi spoke forth the words of God. He said this, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah said, there's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. So John not only prophesied himself, he was prophesied um, about himself. So that's one reason he's more than a prophet. Secondly, John is more than a prophet, or as verse 11 seems to allude, the greatest of the prophets, because John was the only prophet of the Messiah that could actually point people to Christ and say, there he is. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and Abraham and Moses and all of these others in the Old Testament that prophesied, they looked forward. If you will, it was sort of like a, like a fuzzy, you ever watch TV shows and they have those dream sequences, you know, and, and you know it is because it gets all kind of fuzzy. And you see, that's kind of how they looked into the future. They sort of saw it but didn't quite understand it and said, look, this is what I saw not really sure what it exactly means, but here. Here's the word of the Lord to you. And they would present it. John, it's right in front of him. And he could say, there he is. Look at him. And he could tell people, behold, there is the Lamb of God. So he's the greatest. They prophesied in faith. He prophesied, if you will, by sight. Jesus goes on to say this. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, here's an interesting thing. As far as John the Baptist knows, when his disciples get back to him, John's kind of in trouble, right? Because he, he had these doubts, he expressed them, and Jesus said, you need to go back and read your Bible a little, and blessed is the one that's not offended by me. And John's got to hear that and think, oh boy, I'm going to go back and read my Bible a little, and I hope I didn't offend him, and I didn't try to be offended. You know what I mean? He's got to wrestle with that. Don't you think John would have liked if Jesus said, Tell John to read his Bible. Tell him not to be offended by me. Tell him I love him. Tell him I think he's awesome. Tell him I think he's the greatest prophet that's ever been around. Don't you think John would have liked a little bit of word of encouragement here? But he doesn't get a word of encouragement. And the reason why I bring it up right here is everybody doesn't get a trophy in the Christian walk thing. 
And what I mean by that is it's okay in our Christian walk thing if sometimes we go home from the last game and we don't have a trophy and we sort of have our head down and we lost. We're like, man, I lost. And we feel a little bummed out. Sometimes we go into the presence of the Lord or sometimes he brings the presence, usually for me, in my car while I'm driving and I just had sort of an unchristian moment as I'm kind of dealing with something, and sometimes his presence comes into that room and he brings conviction. And you know what conviction feels like for the Christian? It feels awful. I hate it. There are times I'm convicted about things that before I was a Christian, oh my gosh, there's nothing. I get convicted now because I have bad thoughts about what I would like to do to that person who just cut me off. I don't do it. But now I get convicted about thinking about doing it. And in the past, my goodness, the things I used to do. You know, and so you kind of look at that, and uh, let me just get to my point. The point that I'm saying is sometimes we come into God's presence or he comes into our presence, and a conviction comes over us, and it's not warm and fuzzy. John is having one of those experiences, but I'll say this. That doesn't change what Jesus thinks of you. Jesus loves you. He gave his life for you. He calls you his own. When, when you're looked upon, especially when you come into his presence at the end of your days, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so just be encouraged by that. If you're feeling the convict, conviction of the Lord in, in something that you're dealing with, doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you. I would suggest to you he does love you. He doesn't want to keep you in the place that you were. He wants to change you and sanctify you and make you more like himself. And so anyhow here, Jesus here, says of John, greatest of those born of women, no one is greater. But then he, he adds, except those that are least in the kingdom of God. Nobody's greater except the least. Like, well, why'd you bring up the first phrase? And so let's see if we can kind of look at this. Although John appears in the New Testament, John really is an Old Testament saint. And by that, my definition of what that means is, is that John died looking forward in faith to the work that God's Messiah would do. Even though he knew it was Jesus, he hadn't done that work by the time that John dies. So John looks forward in faith to the work of God's Messiah. New Testament saints, the church era, that's what we are, we look back in faith at the work that Jesus had done. You see the difference between Old Testament and New Testament? One is looking forward, one is looking back. Old Testament saints are in relationship with God under the law of his covenant. New Testament saints are in relationship with God under the law of grace, if you will, as Paul the Apostle describes it. Jeremiah, he, he predicted it would be this way. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make in those days with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant. Now, you've probably heard this phrase, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at work. You've heard that phrase? I don't agree. I hate fishing. I I would much rather go to work, all right, hopefully get out a little bit early, sit out in the sun or something like that. But people say a bad day fishing is better than a a good day at work, and that's sort of the idea of what's being communicated here. The least in the era of grace is greatest than the, greater than the greatest in the era of the law. Now, in saying this, Jesus is not measuring our character with John's character. He's not saying we got it all together and John didn't have it together. Character-wise, John was quite, quite a guy. 
I'm sure, far surpassing each one of us in commitment and in courage and determination and sacrifice, all these things. So Jesus is not talking about character. He's speaking about privilege. Privilege-wise, each one of us in the church era is, in actuality, surpassing that of John. John prepared the way for the Lord. You and I get to live in the way of the Lord. And so the greatest, the least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest of the prophets, John. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 12, final verse, uh, or verses. It says, from those days, or from the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept that he's Elijah who is to come, you as ears let him hear. I'm going to talk about that a little bit when we come to it next week. But I want to look at that first verse, verse 12 there. Because there's a few different ideas associated with this idea of violence and what Jesus means in particular by this idea that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and that the violent take it by force. So let's take a look at it. The first part I think is pretty straightforward, that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. As was becoming increasingly evident by this time in the, in the gospel, as is evident by the fact that John's in prison and is going to eventually be executed, as will be evidenced by the fact that Jesus will give his life. Each of these apostles here are going to give their lives in violent manners, with the exception of John the apostle himself. What's increasingly becoming evident is that the gospel is not readily received. And it's actually responded to by many of the political leaders and many of the religious leaders in a violent way. And so that's this idea the kingdom of heaven has suffered violent. Violence, I think a little more challenging is understanding that phrase and the violent take it by force. And the reason why I think it's challenging, in the first phrase, the violent are the unbelievers that are coming up against the Christians, if you will, or those from the kingdom of heaven. And so the natural assumption would be the violent, if they're the violent ones, unbelievers, then in the second phrase, the violent ones must be the unbelievers also. And if that's the case, essentially it is saying that when the world system comes against the Christian message, it's going to win. It's going to take the Christian message and the kingdom of God by force. That's not a really biblical idea. Jesus would say in another place, he would talk to Peter, and he said, you're Peter. And upon this confession that you just made, Peter, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. And so this idea that the violent are going to overcome the church or something, it's just not a biblical idea. So it can't mean that. I think an alternative understanding of what it could mean is better and more in line with Scripture as a whole. And I think part of it would, would help us if we don't look at the word violent. Let's change the word violent to an alternative meaning. I think of violent as you know a bunch of people with bats or whatever or the military going out and overthrowing a government or something like that. But this word violent can mean forceful. This word violent can be those, if you will, that don't take no for an answer that are continuing to go forward, and they're pressing forward here. And so if that's the word that we're using, that's the idea that we're using, then I would suggest to you this refers to those in the kingdom of God. And it's those in the kingdom of God that are advancing the kingdom of God. The idea would be simply this. The kingdom of God does not advance through passivity on the part of its citizens, on the part of you and I. The kingdom of God does not advance through passivity. Uh, let me add there, doesn't typically. Can God do what God's going to do? Certainly. But I think that's a problem because we know that God can do what God is going to do. You know the story in the Old Testament of Balaam's donkey? And here's Balaam, this prophet, he's going to do what he shouldn't be doing, and he's riding along to go do it, and, and God has made it very clear, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, but he's going to do it anyway. 
And finally, the donkey rams him up against the wall or whatever, and, and he yells at the donkey. What's the matter with you, you stupid donkey? The donkey yells back at him. Have I ever been a bad donkey? I'm a good donkey. You know, I'm saving your life right now. So certainly God can do what God is going to do. But I think what a lot of us as Christians do, we are so convinced of the sovereignty of God in that way, we say to ourselves, great, now I can sit back, you know, iced tea, little umbrella or whatever, lay back, and I don't have to do anything because God's going to do what God is going to do. Really? Has that really been your experience that those that just sit back and do nothing are the most effective in ministry for the kingdom of God? Certainly not. Come on. Let's all be honest here. It's those that are busy about the kingdom. So if here we are, let's, we go into a doctor's office, and there's three of us there. Two of us are believers, and the other person is an unbeliever. And the other person is sitting there pulling out their hair or whatever, and you could really see the anguish on their face. And one person just sits there and says, God is going to do what God is going to do. And the other one says, are you okay? Is everything all right? Can I help you? And you begin to share the gospel with them. Let me just ask you, which one of those you think is going to have a better chance of reaching that person for the kingdom of God? This time I want an answer. Yes, certainly. It's going to be, you're like, we didn't know what you wanted. It's going to be the second one. God can do it, but he typically tends to use us when we're busy about the work. I really like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. It's kind of lengthy, so much so we didn't put it up on the screen. So listen, it's about 12 pages long. Just listen. (laughs) I'm kidding. 10. It says, frequently, complaints are made and surprise expressed by individuals who have never found a blessing rest upon anything that they have attempted to do in the service of God. All right, did you catch that so far? People, you know, I, I try to do a work, but God's blessing isn't there. He goes on, that maybe they say something like, I've been a Sunday school teacher for years, says one, and I've never seen any of my girls or boys converted. And then Spurgeon says, no. And the reason most likely is you have never been violent about it, forceful about it. You have never been compelled by the divine spirit to make up your mind that converted they shall be and no stone should be left unturned until they were. You've never been brought by the spirit to such a passion that you have said, I cannot live unless God bless me. I cannot exist until I see some of these children saved. And then falling on your knees in agony and in prayer and putting forth afterwards your trust with the same intensity toward heaven you would never have been disappointed. Why? Spurgeon says, because the violent take it by force. You see the point? It's with rare exception that the kingdom of heaven advances through our passivity. And it's those that are busy about the ministry of the kingdom and desperate to see the advancement of the kingdom that oftentimes are the ones, or almost always are the ones experiencing fruit in their ministry. You know, reading Spurgeon's words there, I'm reminded of the patriarch Jacob. You remember Genesis chapter 32? You have the story of Jacob there. He has an encounter with God one evening while he is sleeping. And all through the night, they're communicating with you. Well, they're wrestling is what the passage says. And in Genesis 32, God says to Jacob, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob says to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, if you read that just in Genesis 32, it's almost as if Jacob has God's arm behind his back and he says, I won't let you go unless you say uncle or something like that. It it almost comes off that way. 
But in the book of Hosea, later on in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea comments on that event. And there we learn that Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He says that while he's actually weeping. He said, it strove, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought God's favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke. Jacob wasn't, he didn't have God's arm behind his back, if you will. He was lying on the ground, being dragged along on his belly, holding on to God's foot, that God wouldn't get away. And he said, I won't let go unless you bless me. Jacob was determined to see God's hand, and with weeping, refused to let go of the Lord until God's hand had moved. And so I want to ask this question. Do we as a church, do we approach ministry in that way? Do we approach ministry in that way? Do you, as a Christian, filled with the Spirit of God to be the light of the world, do you approach personal ministry in that way? Do you seek the Lord for your children in that way, crying out to them that they may know the Lord and be used by the Lord? Do you pray for your neighbors and your co-workers And do you look for every opportunity that you can to speak a word of truth in their lives? Are you so determined, these co-workers of mine, this son of mine, my sisters, my uncle, my brother of mine is going to get saved if it's the last thing I do? And do you approach ministry in that particular way? Do we cry out for our community in that way? I can tell you, honestly, I don't believe we do. And And I can tell you, Even more honestly, I know that I don't. I don't cry out for our community in that way. I don't cry out for my family members in that way. I think there was a time when I did, but I don't do that as much as I should now. I think a better description of a lot of churches' ministry and a lot of Christians' ministry approach would be basically God's going to do what God's going to do. I hope he uses me or whatever, but we don't take any steps toward it. Again, to quote Spurgeon, we have never been brought by the Spirit, to such a passion that we say, I can't live unless the Lord bless me. My friends, I want to, and I think we need to remind ourselves that this is a spiritual battle. And whether whether we're talking about winning people to the Lord or advancing the kingdom of God in, in that way outward, or we're talking about inward. I mean, how many of us have settled with certain areas of sin in our life where we've just essentially said, eh, well, you know, just it's a bad habit. Just something I've always done. And the Lord is saying, well, you've got to stop doing it. But we don't press in to see the change. You, you see where I'm going with that? And we just sort of settle with it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, the Apostle Paul would say. And the kingdom of heaven, whether it's outward or inward, is advanced by those that are aggressively pressing in and taking hold of the kingdom of heaven, not those that are passively, apathetically perhaps sitting back. The kingdom of heaven is advanced by those that are fervent in prayer. Are you fervent in prayer? The kingdom of heaven is advanced by those that are taking aggressive steps of faith. I'm very excited. Our men's ministry is about to start. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. It's a great resource, and I'm excited about the study because what I'm really excited about is 10 or 12 or 15 guys that are going to start taking those steps of faith because they're encouraged by what they're reading and discussing and talking about. The kingdom of heaven is advanced by those that are taking steps of faith. As Peter did, he got out of the butter, the water, and he, I'm hungry, butter. He got out of the water, and he walked, 
He got out of the boat and he walked on the water. The kingdom of heaven. Honestly, it's advanced by those that go to bed at night physically exhausted but spiritually alive because they've been busy about the work of the kingdom. And my prayer for us is that God would make us a church like that so that each week 150, 200 of us would go different directions as missionaries, if you will. And so I'm praying that for you and I'm praying that for me. And so let's do that right now. Father, we thank you. Lord, even the desire to reach people for the kingdom, Lord, we, we can rejoice that that comes from you. Lord, you've uh, birthed within our hearts new life. You've given us a burden for others, Lord. And so, Father, we're asking, Lord, that you would increase that burden. Lord, you'd bring us to the place, Lord, where we essentially are like Jacob, clinging to you and saying, Lord, I'm not stopping until this person is saved. I'm going to keep telling them, keep praying for them, keep loving them until they come to know you. Certainly, Lord, we leave the results with you, but we take up our part in the process. And, Lord, we could uh, compel ourselves to do that outwardly, but the really effective way is when you prompt us inwardly, and so we're asking that, Lord, Lord, for each one of us. Thank you for your word. I just thank you for how good it is, how true it is, how solid. What a foundation our lives could be built on it. Lord, bless these people, we ask. Bless me, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.